millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and very welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, my guest today is Sinn Féin spokesperson for health, David Cullinan. David Cullinan is a native of Watford and was first elected to Dáil in 2016, serving as his party's public expenditure and reform spokesperson in that Dáil. In 2020, he was re-elected with over 20,000 first preference votes, the highest achieved in that constituency, certainly in recent times. And I suppose it's fair to say was uh, certainly, while some of it may well have been a personal vote, it was also attributable to a huge surge towards Sinn Féin in that election. Since then, he's been his party spokesperson for health and I think it's fair to say one of the frontline performers for Sinn Féin at a time when, according to a lot of media and political opinion anyway, the party is preparing for government. Last week, he published his party's alternative health budget, which promises to, I suppose you could say, solve, if that's the right word, what is obviously a serious problem with the delivery of health services in this country. Health, I think we're all agreed, is vital to our collective well-being and is also one of the major political issues of the day. David, you're very welcome. Thank you, Mick. I'm glad to be here. David, first off, um, you're Minister for Health in the morning. What are the first three things you would attempt to address, particularly now with a view to something that would get a relatively quick result? Well, the first thing I'll say is that I want to be Minister for Health. And I think it's important for me to say that because uh, I've listened over the course of the last 20 years or maybe longer since I've been involved in politics to a political discourse that talks about health as a poisoned chalice or it was described famously once as Angola. Uh, and the department that you don't want. And I genuinely take a different view. I think that if you can make a difference in healthcare, that you can really transform people's lives. And it's a really exciting department to be part of. And, and I think part of the problem that we've had in the past is that lack of ambition and vision that maybe some of my predecessors would have had. And to answer your question directly, I actually don't believe there is any quick wins in healthcare. I think if any Minister for Health that believes it can go in and sort the myriad of, of challenges and difficulties from waiting lists uh, to all of the contractual issues, the recruitment and retention issues which exist overnight, I think is going to be in for a rude awakening. I think there are things that need to be done very quickly in what I would see as the first 100 days of, of a Sinn Féin Minister for Health. But in the main, it would be about setting the tone and, and laying the foundations for what would come over a term in government and two terms in government. And in reality, you know, lots of issues in healthcare. Some of it is reform and about accountability and transparency and about how healthcare is done, which doesn't require resources. And I think there are things you can do there very quickly. But some of it is obviously additional capacity and that can only be done once you have your first budget. So the first thing I would do is to prepare for what would be the first budget as Minister for Health and work with the range of stakeholders and groups that I have been working with over, over the last two years to make sure that that first budget is ambitious but practical, realistic and deliverable. But if I was to pick out one thing that I would do very early on, 
is to send out a message to those who work in the healthcare system that we're serious about reform. And I would establish a high-level group led by Antishuk, if that was Mary Lou MacDonald, with the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform and the Minister for Higher Education to actually get serious about workforce planning, to increase training places, graduate, undergraduate positions, specialist medical training, intern places, and then start the process of addressing all of those contractual disputes to to try and send a message out to those who are training and want to come and work in the public system that we're serious about it. I think that would be a big statement for a new Minister for Health to make. So that would be my number one priority in the first 100 days. Okay. Now, as I mentioned, David, last week you published the um, your alternative health budget and the in, in terms of the funding side, I think it's about 1.1 billion extra you're saying uh, where you Minister for Health you would apply in 2023. And the outcomes from that, according to your budget, are pretty dramatic and they'd suggest that there would be some major change as a result. Now, having said that, between 2011 and 2019, the health budget went from 18 billion to 23 billion. And that's slightly less annual average than what you, you, you've set out about how much extra you think should be spent. Nobody would suggest even over that far longer period there's been anything like that level of change. I mean, what makes you think it could be any different? Well, uh, I think you have to separate two issues. One, the additional capacity that the healthcare service needs. And I'm someone that's deeply conscious of the fact that we do spend a lot of money on healthcare. So the budget for last year was €21 billion euro, right, in excess of that. That's a huge amount of money for this state to spend. Uh, but we still have capacity deficits across all elements of healthcare, from acute hospitals to primary care and community care. And we have a roadmap which launched care, which still hasn't been properly resourced and obviously is a longer term uh, vision. But we almost have to separate that out from the accountability piece, which I actually think is is, is as important. And while you're increasing capacity, for me, it's also about making the system work better, work smarter. And I would see the establishment of regional health areas as the first step in that. So at the moment, we have what's called hospital groups, and they're not integrated really to any great degree with primary and community care. The whole logic of the regional health areas is to establish one structure in healthcare where you can eliminate, or I would hope to eliminate, eliminate huge layers of management which we don't need to create a single structure that can deliver healthcare, but more importantly, that actually integrates primary community and acute care. And if I can just very quickly give one example as to why that's necessary. If you look at the high wait times in emergency departments at the moment and the huge presentations that we're seeing every day in emergency departments, that's in part because we have people going to the wrong place at the wrong time for care. So we have about 40% of people, it's estimated by healthcare professionals who attend emergency departments, are people who should be seeing a GP, particularly out of hours, but can't get access to out of hours GP care, or people with chronic conditions who should be cared for in the community or in some cases cared for in the home. And I'm a great believer that if you actually invest in primary and community care, as Shalonda Care promised, you can take pressure off your acute system. And that in turn would lead to less pressures and less of a demand on us to continuously have to invest more in hospitals where we actually should be investing more in primary and community care. But the accountability piece then is really important because I would argue, and I think a lot of people would agree with me, uh, that we have uh, huge layers of management in the healthcare service. We have the head of the HSE, we have a secretary general in the Department of Health. 
But do we really have the levels of transparency and accountability in healthcare that we would need if mistakes are made or people held to account? Um, and I would hope that through the establishment of these regional health areas, that you would see much more devolved responsibility down from the centre uh, and empower those regional health areas to actually deliver the healthcare that needs to be delivered, but then then need to be held to account for it for every cent of taxpayers' money that's spent. Uh, and if money can be uh, saved through eliminating waste, if any of it is out there, I can tell you I'll be looking for that as well, because I believe that every cent of taxpayers' money that goes into healthcare has to be properly accounted for. So I think there's two issues that, that are at play. One is the need for additional capacity and one is the need for accountability and transparency. OK, but in your alternative health budget, the only place where I can see any proposed savings is £25 million on agency nursing staff. Now, you know, saving £25 million on nursing staff, presumably that's because you're staffing more people. There's an extra cost to that involved as well. And what I'm getting at is you're talking about really transformative reform. But I can't recall scenarios whereby there was, it was possible to do that type of thing and not have, to use that awful word, pain, I mean, by economic upheaval, industrial upheaval, whatever you want to call it. And yet your plan seems to set out something that largely avoids all of that and it's just a question of working a bit smarter and having a bit more investment. No, I, I don't accept that. I, I, certainly I would agree that the only line item in this year's budget proposals that we made to save money is in the area of agency spend. And by the way, it's not just nursing. It's right across the healthcare system, including in primary and community care. To spend on agency staff, which I believe increased in the last two years from 350 million to 500 million euro. And there's a whole myriad of organisations that are benefiting from that. And I would say making very handsome profits on the back of outsourcing healthcare, where we should be insourcing more. And I've had a discussion, a very straight discussion, it has to be said, with the head of the, the Department of Health on this. And I've described the spend on agency spend as a runaway train where we need far greater controls and far greater transparency. And he agreed that that was one of the areas where we do need uh, more uh, reform. And that then is about political leadership. But equally in our, in our document, uh, we also set out what we would do very quickly to increase uh, the ability for the HSE to be able to respond better to uh, saving money. So as an example, we're increasing training places. Uh, uh, we've provided for an additional 1,500 additional graduate and post undergraduate training positions. We're the first political party to really go into the detail of that and set out under all of the different specialties what, what that would mean. It's, it's an average of a 24% increase that was delivered next year. And I've engaged with all of the uh, institutes that deliver the training and they're saying that they could do this and it's necessary and all healthcare professionals know it needs to be done. So if you put the foundations in and you start doing that, then you have an ability over time to actually uh, reduce our dependency on outsourcing, which costs huge amounts of money. And that's what I mean about being smart. I could be a minister for health that can throw out sound bites and say that overnight we can eliminate millions or billions of euro of waste. Whereas any uh, intelligent understanding of how the system works knows that you actually have to put the infrastructure in place. And another example of what I mean by that is I want to deliver on the big promises of Schlondekar. So I want to deliver free GP care for all citizens. That was one of the big promises of delivering a, a, a single tier health service free at the point of delivery. 
That won't be done unless you increase GP capacity. You have to increase GP training places. But it also won't be done unless you, you have a new modern contract, fit for purpose contract for independent general practice, which means increasing significantly the funding and the subsidies into that area to put the foundation in place. See, if you don't do that, you'll be a minister that will fall flat on your face, which is what has happened up to date, where we see Minister Donnelly negotiate and negotiate and negotiate without any outcome at the end of it, um, because he hasn't put the foundations in and he hasn't won the trust of the GPs to do it. So that's what I mean about being smart, but also being honest that this is a multi-annual strategy. Uh, you know, Things are going to take some time and you try and get as much as you can done as quickly as you can. But everything that I'm doing is predicated on uh, a one-term government, possibly two terms, to really get to a point where we can move from the two-tier system that we have to a single-tier service. Okay, and I spoke about, you know, and I think it's fair to say there are a huge number of vested interests in health service simply because there is such a wide range of people and the nature of the way government has evolved in this country, um, special interest groups all have their own say, and that's as it should be in some ways, but some people would claim they get too much power. In that vein, David, one of the big problems that keeps coming up in terms of the health service, is that it is not 24-7. People certainly are on call at weekends, absolutely. And nurses, for example, work right through weekends, I think, on, on a 24-7 basis. But you don't have consultants, junior doctors, um, able to get MRIs, the discharging of patients, which is a huge thing. None of that takes place on Saturday and Sunday as they do during the week. Would you address that? I think that it would be an enormous challenge to get to a full 24-7 service across all modalities of acute hospital services. I think that would be huge. Um, but certainly you would look at expanding it. So like I faced those challenges in my own constituency in Waterford where we don't have 24-7 cardiac services. And it means that outside of uh, 9am to 5pm Monday to Friday, if you have an emergency heart attack in Waterford, then the only option for you is an ambulance to Cork or Dublin. And that's not satisfactory. Um, I, I suppose what I would say is that the nature of work is changing and the nature of work in healthcare is changing as well. Healthcare professionals that I talk to, they want a work-life balance, uh, they want a quality of life, but they would be open to obviously uh, working different shifts and, and maybe more flexibility, which could mean um, in some areas being able to better transition to a 24-7 service. Um, what I would say is that there are areas of healthcare which certainly need to be expanded out beyond normal working hours. It's not acceptable that you can go into a supermarket uh, in some uh, pla uh, places, you know, where they're, they're open 24 hours, but yet when you need healthcare uh, at a certain time, you can't get it. I think a start would be if we had 24-7 primary care cover and GP cover. That's why I think out of hours GP care is really important. Uh, we don't have to have every element of the healthcare system working 24-7, but you can have your acute hospital, which they do in emergency departments open, but they need to be properly staffed and, 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 and equipped to do it. One thing about that, though, like, you know, just <laughs> even my own business in newspapers, you know, there's no question uh, it, the newspapers come out six days a week or seven, some places, and weekends, you have to work, okay, you get your extra week end off or whatever. And that's just one tiny example. That is in a whole range of sectors throughout society. Why can't it be in health? 
It, it, it can be. And, and I think then it, that's a bit of quid pro quo that needs to be in place when when I say that I want to address a, a myriad of contractual issues that have bogged down the health service. If I was to start listing all of the areas where we don't have modern fit for purpose contracts, it would take up most of this interview. For example, we know junior doctors are threatening strike action because they're, they're working huge amounts of overtime. Um, I'm somebody that puts down a huge amount of parliamentary questions to the Department of Health, which probably breaks their heart in terms of the volume of them. And it's only because they don't answer the questions that we ask in the, on the first occasion we have to go back. But overtime is one of those areas where when you actually look at the figures, um, there's huge amounts of overtime being worked, not because the staff there want to work the overtime, but because we don't have the actual capacity. So uh, junior doctors is one area. Hospital consultants, we don't have the new public-only contract. Uh, just right, GPs, for example, we don't have a modern GP contract. And I could go on and on. I have said to all of these uh, trade unions, representative bodies, that if it's the case that we put in place modern fit-for-purpose contracts, uh, then we also have to uh, have a quid pro quo, uh, which means expanding services in some areas, looking at more flexible hours to extend uh, to 24-7 services in, in some area. Uh, but also we need to look at the capacity constraints that actually would prevent that from happening. Uh, and that's physical infrastructure and all the other uh, things that need to be done. And, and Mick, what they say to me when I speak to healthcare professionals, a lot of them are excited about change in healthcare. They want to see strong leadership and, and, and they want to see the, direct, the direction of the health service move in a different direction to a single tier health service. But they also want to know that as Minister for Health, that you will put your money where your mouth is and provide them with the tools to do the job. And I think that's what I mean by a quid pro quo. It can't just be writing a blank check and not getting a result at the end of it. It has to be okay. tangible in terms of targeting the investment where it's necessary to get that return for patients and for, for the taxpayer. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, another area that obviously is a major problem is emergency departments. And one place that's topical in that respect is Navin. There's been a campaign, obviously, there's been moves to reduce the status of its emergency department uh, and there's been a campaign to stop that. Now, it should be pointed out, Jerry McEntee, who is the clinical director of Navin Hospital, says it is unsafe. He's offering what you might like to call, well, what I would like to call the science, so to speak. And as opposed to that, you have, and I think it's fair to say, the politics, which is opposition, understandably, on one level, from local people. Yet, in terms of political leaders, would you go with the politics or the science? Well, I, I, first of all, I have huge respect for, for Jerry McEntee and for all of the consultants who work in, in that hospital. And, and he's right that the service is unsafe. He's absolutely right. But there are very few emergency departments at this point in time operating a safe service if you look at the wait times in, in those hospitals. 
Over the last couple of weeks alone, we've seen record numbers of patients in hospital trolleys. We had a HICWA report that we discussed in the Oireachtas Health Committee this week uh, on uh, 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 failures of that hospital to actually meet uh, basic requirements and, and HSE and, and HICWA standards. So we have a real problem, not just in that emergency department, but across a whole range of emergency departments. And simply because they're not safe doesn't mean that you close them. You have to make them safe. And what I would say to Jerry McEntee is what I've said to the people of Navin directly. Look at what happened in the Midwest region where we closed emergency departments in uh, Ennis, in Nina and St. John's in Limerick. We had four emergency de uh, departments serving the population of the Midwest. We closed three and we were left with one university hospital, Limerick. And what happened? One of the worst performing hospitals in terms of outcomes, in terms of the numbers of people waiting for treatment, and then horrific stories coming out of the emergency department almost on a daily basis. So you have to get it right. And it's not simply about because the service is unsafe that you close it. You have to make it safe, and you make it safe by putting the investment and the capacity in. And I would have a okay. fear... Mick, that while that science is right and the med medical advice is right that it's unsafe, that going for the easy option of closing it uh, may not be actually the best thing to do because you just move the patients elsewhere to hospitals who are also under pressure. Well, you might describe it as the easy option, and I'd suggest that perhaps it would be the difficult option because, and I understand entirely people's fears, but then again, that's up against what the experts are saying. On a broader... But not all of the uh, experts uh, make... Not all of the experts, yeah, and I know there's some in Drogheda who have given a different yeah, view. They've given a different view. But taking uh, what you might call a more global view, and that is the, the Association of Emergency Medicine, which is made up of the consultants who work in ED departments. Their strategic objective uh, for coming years they set out a document there and they went through their 29 hospitals in state offering ED services in a 24-7 basis 11 injury units etc the main thrust of what they said and I've heard their representative um, I think it's Jerry Hickey is the man's name repeat this a number of times and this is definitely an article of faith as far as they're concerned the association is on record as taking the view that Ireland currently has too many EDs, emergency departments, and reconfiguration is required. Now, reconfiguration there basically means we have to close some of them. Would you be in favour of that? Well, I'd first of all have to see what the proposal is. If I was Minister for Health, if you're asking me, would I listen to experts and would I listen to clinical and medical advice? Of course I would. Uh, and I've done that in my own constituency in Waterford on many occasions. Sometimes it's unpopular to do so when you stand with uh, the medical opinion as opposed to sometimes a very simplistic demand coming from people that a service should be uh, delivered. So I'm in favour of specialist services. Um, I'm a great supporter of what Mary Harney did with, with, done with the National Cancer Strategy. Um, I don't uh, agree with everything that Mary Harney did in healthcare and the co-location and embedding the private system into the public system is not something I would have done. But the National Cancer Strategy, I think, is a very good example of what you do and how you can get the best outcome. So what I would do there in terms of emergency departments, and we've committed to this, is to carry out an independent clinical review of all emergency departments within each regional health area to look at where you may need additional uh, emergency department capacity and maybe then where you can rationalise to provide a better service. Uh, that needs to be done. So I have no problem whatsoever in making tough decisions, but I would make what I would hope are the best decisions. Sometimes, you know, what is seen as a tough decision 
um, might be seen as some people as not the best um, from their perspective. And there will be different opinions you get, as you can see with Navin, where, you know, healthcare professionals have different opinions. I would hope I would make the right decisions. But but you have to listen to medical advice. You have to listen to expert, experts. But ultimately, when you're the Minister for Health, at some point, you have to make a decision and come down on, on what is the best outcome. At this point in time, I, I'm not qualified to say which emergency department should open and close. I think politicians certainly should, shouldn't be making those judgments. But in principle, what I would want to see is as much capacity protected as possible. And if a very sound, logical, clinical argument is made that in any area that rationalising emergency departments is in the interests of patients and patient safety, of course I would listen and I would act on that. Okay, you mentioned Mary Harney and... You met her. Why did you ask her for a meeting and how did it go? I reached out to her and I'll be straight up. I reached out to uh, a number of uh, former ministers for health. Uh, and it goes back to what I said earlier. I really want to be minister for health. It may not happen because uh, I, I'm not saying this for the purposes of this interview because you're a journalist and it's something that we have to say. I'm genuinely not presumptuous about the outcome of the next election because we saw in the last general election a huge swing in the election campaign itself. And that can happen in the next election. It might be a bigger swing towards Sinn Féin, or it may not be. So we don't know what the outcome of the election will be. But I think if you're in the role as the main opposition party, and I'm the main opposition health spokesperson, you need to be preparing for the job if and when it comes. But I genuinely want to do it. And I think that if you want it, you have to talk to people who've been in that position. I think that's a reasonable thing to do. So I've met with a number of former ministers for health. I may meet more. Some may refuse to meet me, but none have so far. I've met with former heads of the HSE. And again, I don't make any apologies for that. But I've also met hundreds of healthcare professionals. I I would imagine I met every advocate representative body that can be met over the course of the last two years. I visited 15 hospitals in a six month uh, period because I wanted to hear directly from people who work in the system. And I think that's what would make a good minister for health. I spent the first of my two years as the main opposition health spokesperson listening. And I think that's really important. I went and I engaged and I listened and she had some interesting things to say. Um, and she gave me the best of what her wisdom is on on challenges that I, I may uh, be presented with if I was Minister for Health. Uh, and I was grateful for the opportunity to meet her, I have to say, and, and others. And I think that widens your perspective. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Get, get, get as much advice as possible. No. In terms of Mary Harney, and you you mentioned it earlier yourself, one of her big successes was the cancer care strategy. And just a couple of things about, I think, I think to the greatest extent, and there are problems there as there are everywhere, but to a large extent, it's regarded as being pretty successful. There were a couple of elements to that. One, she had a, a tsar, as, to use that word as they do, which was uh, Professor Tom Keane an Irishman who came from abroad. He came from outside the system, which I think is very notable. He subsequently resigned from the, um, is it the Slaunch Advisory Board because he was unhappy with how that was going, which indicates the kind of calibre of the man. He stuck this out um, and he had an issue. He wanted, as I mentioned about the EDs, he, he decided that a number of the smaller places had to be closed and you had centres of excellence. And I think he's been proved right in that. And there was one particular issue around Sligo and very understandably in terms of the people in the North West because of travel and what have you. But he was insistent that in terms of the configuration he wanted and to close down, Sligo had to close. There was an issue over that for a while. 
It was touch and go. And Mary Harney actually backed him. And I think they've been proven to be right on that. Now, just about that. First of all, I think it's fair to say Mary Harney at that time, like yourself, actually, in terms of she wanted to do health, she was also on the do- heading out the door politically. So whatever political heat there was going to be, it would have been diluted, to put it that way. And secondly, Tom Keane's attitude was back me or I'm gone. I put it to you, David, that in a similar situation, I would suggest that's the kind of attitude there be, should be towards emergency departments. And the problem you have, in my opinion, is that politically it would be such a hot potato and certainly so far in terms of Sinn Féin, there is no sign that anything that would potentially lose votes on any kind of a scale like that would be grappled. And even if you were of a mind to do so, would you have the backing of your leader, for instance? Well, a, a couple of things. One, I'm a great admirer of Tom Keane and it was one of the reasons why I met Mary Harney. So I've already outlined my admiration of the process that led to the National Cancer Strategy. That's a uh, process that I want to follow generally in healthcare, which is why uh, I think that we need a Director of Healthcare Reform. And in fact, I think we actually need to change how we see the Minister for Health. Uh, the Minister for Health, in my view, should be a Minister for Healthcare Reform. And I want to spend as much of my time, if not more of my time, focused on delivering change in healthcare and driving that change agenda to bring about the changes that we need, as opposed to the day-to-day management of the healthcare system. We pay the head of the Department of Health very handsomely and the head of the HSE very handsomely to do all of that work. So I would be looking for somebody like Tom Keane to come in and be the driver of the changes in healthcare which are needed. And and I'm a great believer in that. I'll get my chance possibly as Minister for Health. And if I do, I can tell you that I will make decisions that need to be made in the interest of patients. And if some people see them as tough decisions or some people see them as unpopular, so be it. That will have to be done. But I'm not going to be starting as a Minister for Health as somebody who wants to cut services. I think there would have to be a very strong, very strong clinical argument made to me that the service is unsafe. And if I genuinely believed that the best thing to do was to cease the service or to rationalise or to centralise, if it was in the interest of patients, I can tell you I would take uh, that decision. I've also had conversations with Mary Lou Macdonald on this, and I'm not again presumptuous that even if we were in government, that she would make me the Minister for Health because that's her prerogative. But she knows that I am anxious uh, to be given the opportunity, that I'm interested, that I, I want to do it. And I've said to her that the Taoiseach has to be as invested in the success of the healthcare reform agenda as the Minister for Health. The entire government needs to be. So it can't be that, you know, you leave it to the Minister for Health and that's it, which is why I think that uh, the the Department of Taoiseach and whoever Taoiseach is, and if it was the Sinn Féin government, that would, mar- would be Mary Lee MacDonald, that she would have to be as accountable and as invested and as enthusiastic about the changes in healthcare as I am. And I think that she would be, and I've had that very straight conversation with her. And I think that's for the better and would be for the good. Because then what you have, and what I would like to do in broad terms as a Minister for Health, is to try and point the health direction, the health service in a direction, which is to transition from a two-tier service to a single-tier health system. To do that over a reasonable time period and to bring as many people with me and to have as many people aligned and behind that agenda as possible. And I think that if you can mobilise 
all of the energy and enthusiasm that I see in, in the healthcare system, but also the innovation. It is incredible when you look at even the Royal College of Surgeons, the, the, the training capacity that we have, what's done, uh, the research and development in Ireland that we do in healthcare is enormous. I want to channel all of that innovation and enthusiasm into delivering better healthcare, as opposed to what I hear too often of a jaded health service, under pressure, demoralized, uh, and no vision or no focus and no direction. And that I would hope would be the difference that I would bring. But if you're asking me if I had to make a tough decision, as you would see it, uh, would I make it? Yes. But if it was the right decision, it shouldn't be a tough decision. Like, that's the point. If you're making well, the tough right politically, political David, decision. Tough politically, uh, back again to that kind of dual thing, and you can agree or disagree with the, the science versus the politics. I'll give you an example of, of, of my, in my own constituency, Mick, I'll give you an example. So we had this, the establishment of a technological university for the Southeast, which was a merger of Waterford and Carlow mm -hmm. Institutes of Technology. I came under huge political pressure to not back that and to push for a university for Waterford only. And I refuse to do it because I believe in the power of the region and the critical force and the critical mass of the region. And I believed that it was the only option and the best option on the table. And let's go for it and not get distracted okay. with, uh, you know, uh, ambitions that are not going to be realizable. So I have a track record, I would hope, of giving that leadership. But I was proved right. And that's the point. I would hope that whatever decision I make is not just doing it for the sake of doing it and being unpopular. I don't, nobody wants to be unpopular. Some decisions you make, even if they're the right decisions, which I think is the point you're making, can be politically unpopular. And that's going to happen when we're in government. And we have to be ready for that. And I have to be ready for that as Minister for Health. And I hope that I will be. Okay. And in an overall sense, it would just strike me Look, as you well know, and, and fairness to you, I, I think it's been accepted you've done a, a huge amount of work on your brief, but you, you, you will have come across the fact that there have others who've been there before you. I mentioned James Riley, and some people didn't want to be health minister. He obviously did. Stephen Donnelly, to some extent, perhaps. Mary Harney is another example. They all did. They all went in there, um, and they all did what they could, and they all to some extent, sounded exactly like you before they went in there. And they found it very different. And the other element to that, David, is that people suggest to a large extent that a big part of the whole thing is the politics of health and getting past that has proved so difficult in so many ways. How are you going to be any different? Well, I'm going in, first of all, with my eyes wide open that uh, there is no magic solutions. I think it was one of the first things I said. There is no quick wins. There is no quick fixes. Uh, and I'm under no illusion whatsoever that it will be a very, very difficult job, extremely difficult. I have no doubt I will be frustrated on many occasions. There will be pushback against what I want to do. Uh, there will be good days and there will be bad days. But I genuinely believe that with the vision that my party has and I have, and with the not just the enthusiasm, but with the policy backup and the resource backup that we will put into it and prioritise health, because it's really important, I, I would argue as well, for any future border poll, when you consider that people in the North really value their uh, National Health Service, mm. uh, that's one of the reasons, but not the only reason why I want to be successful and deliver an Irish National Health Service. So I think if I bring that approach, I will be successful. How successful is subjective? 
and people will have their opinions. And I'm sure there'll be many columns written by people like yourself in relation to my success or failure. And let's see what happens. Uh, but my eyes are wide open in the sense that I know I will meet huge challenges. But I also know that if you can make changes in healthcare, if they're positive, you can really transform people's lives because the waiting lists are unacceptable. The length of time people wait in emergency departments is unacceptable. When I talk to families of uh, children with disabilities, for example, who can't get access to services for their kids or children with scoliosis who can't get access to surgical capacity for their kids. That's heartbreaking. And I'm not saying that you can magic up solutions overnight, but I think if you begin the process and you're sincere and and you start to deliver, I think you'll get a bit of fair wind behind you. And I would hope that would be the case. But I'm under no illusions as to the difficulties of the job. And I'm under no illusions there will be tough days and bad days and setbacks. But how you manage that as an individual, I think is the important uh, part of it. Okay, and I want what they call a hostage to fortune here. Um, if after the next election you're Minister for Health, 12 months into the job you'll come back on the podcast. Absolutely, maybe even. Okay. Um, I, I will certainly always make myself available, Mick, and, and I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to to be able to discuss healthcare because we don't no, it, normally yeah, get opportunities like this over a, an extended time period. Uh, and I think it's really important to have that level of scrutiny of uh, as to, to what exactly we intend to do. Yeah, very true. And we'll come back again and again to it. David Cullinan, thanks very much for thank talking you. to us today. Uh, I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening. And we'll be back with you again next week.